Gonna have a real good time together We're gonna have a real good time together We're gonna laugh the child together Have a real good time together Hello, welcome back to Jokerman Podcast. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And today we are thrilled and honored and privileged, really, to be joined by uh, a friend of Lou Reed's uh, and a collaborator of Lou Reed's and an editor of Lou Reed's new book, The Art of the Straight Line, My Tai Chi. It's Scott Richmond. Scott, thank you so much. Hello, Jokerman. How are you? We're we're centered, you know. Kind of feel like we've got some power flowing through us. Um, Speak for yourself. Been trying to do the twenty-one form all day. Uh, Um, No, I have not. Uh, But (laughs) feeling good. I think we both really want to start uh, doing it. (laughs) I think that's uh, that's how I'm feeling anyway. I feel galvanized. I'm going to send you some video links after. Then you can start practicing in the comfort of your own home. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, we, we, uh, <laughs> I think we can both use a little uh, a Tai Chi energy in our lives these days. Um, you yourself are a practitioner of Tai Chi, from what I understand. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. I started uh, practicing or learning a martial art in 2004 at the behest uh, of Lou, actually. Lou said, sure. you need to come to class, heavyweight. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I did. That seemed to be something that uh, happened pretty often uh, uh, in his life, judging by the interviews that are contained in this book. A lot of, hey, you got to come to a class with me from Lou. Yeah, and or, uh, a lot of these people seem to have uh, taken him up on the offer. Or even just like in a car, he's having people do it. He's, he's anywhere, <laughs> any possible moment, which really seems to speak to, I think, the big takeaway from the book is just how present and important, crucial it was, uh, his Tai Chi practice, to, especially in his later life. Um, it was the thing that he wanted to tell everyone about all the time. Totally. He was a great uh, promoter of Tai Chi and proselytizer of Tai Chi, and he got a lot of us into it. Uh, every year, there just was more people joining the class at Lou's request, and uh, it was great. Yeah, it really seems like a real like kind of community that was built out there, and with like a really interesting cross section of people. Obviously, a lot of people from the rock and art worlds in New York, but then also, you know, a really you know deep well of of knowledge of uh, you know the, the practitioners of Tai Chi from Chin Village, right? Um, and it's <laughs> other uh, technical terms that I'm not uh, uh, super versed in uh, flinging off the top of my head. Uh, but we'll get there uh, in, uh, in in due time. I think just first, could you, Scott, just maybe just like tell us how you how you got involved with Lou? You actually explain it in a very funny kind of anecdote at the end of the book in your uh, notes from the editor. But uh, for the listeners out there, 
Uh, just uh, how did you how did you guys come into each other's lives? So so Lou first entered my life in, when I was 17, 18 in college or high school. And my brother, like your older brother, right? Like that important influence of the older brother said, hey, you know, we're at a record store. And he goes, we should pick up this rock and roll animal. It's a great record. I've heard the guitar. Uh, you know, let's just let's buy this. And we were, you know, brought it home, put it on a Victrola, not even like a stereo, like a crappy, like, you know, turntable. And I just like wore out, I wore it out like in two weeks. Hell yeah. And then I went right to music. It was music then. And I went right back and I picked up New Sensations, which was, this is 1984, put that on. And I was like, this is, there's no way this is the same person. <laughs> it's quite right? a leap. <laughs> Well, the voice, the the lyrics, the subject matter, the guitar, everything was so different. But, you know, I started to find the the connectivity, you know, as I kind of started to explore who he even was. I didn't even know about the Velvet Underground at that point. Um, and so long and short of it was I got deeply into him when I went to college. And I love this. I love to think about this. You guys can relate to this. You know, you're kind of like a... a 18-year-old scrawny, full, I had hair then, uh, going <laughs> to college. And, you know, you're like looking for like an attitude in college. You're trying to, re, re, you know, here's who I am now, 18-year-old sure. me, to new people. And like Lou totally defined my attitude. I was pissed off. I was angry. I was <laughs> surly. But I had a sense of humor. So I kind of, you know, recognized that that's who he was. Right. And so it just became a whole totally deep dive after that. And um, met him a few times in college. You boys will be happy to know that the first time I met him in person was during the mistrial promotion wow. at, uh, in New York, <laughs> which I love your review of that record. And I so appreciate your pat, your, your, you guys gave it such a great, a fair shot. I appreciate that. And I love that record. I love that record. It's, it's a, a good record. Not, it's a good not a two, record. It's a three for me. And I'll tell you. <laughs> but um, so I met him and I said, you know, and I walked up to him or I think I asked the question to the DJ. It was on air. It was on K-Rock, which was Howard Stern's New York terrestrial home mm. uh, for radio. And I said, hey, the song Video Violence is really cool. It has this way out guitar. It's, it reminds me of I Heard Her Call My Name. And Lou goes, wow, it's really interesting. Well, I'm not going to imitate him. But he goes, wow, <laughs> it's interesting that the guy picked up on that. I was trying to do Ornette Coleman with my guitar in I Heard Her Call My Name. And I was trying to do the same thing with Video Violence. So uh -huh. it's interesting. Right? So I was like, cool, man. Like Lou appreciated my, que my <laughs> you question. You nailed it. <laughs> and then I met him a couple of years later at the Grammys where I actually had a full-on conversation with he and Sylvia. And I had read that they were – he had just moved over to Warner Brothers. And I had said to him, hey, I hear you're doing a record with John Cale. This was before – like when there was hints of Drella happening. Mm. And he goes, you really need to you know, keep that on the download. Not a lot of people know that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure everybody there that was at the label knew that. But um, it was such a great party because at that party at the 21 Club at the 1988 Grammys was Lou, Michael Stipe and Peter Buck from R.E.M., mm. Prince, the artist, the Prince when he was still on Warner Brothers, uh, and 
I think Neil Young. It was just a bunch of people. Wow. And I was like, Lou, I just, you know, what did I introduce? We talked and that was it. And then the next time I met him was a Young Kipper 2002, which uh, Evan, I'm sure you appreciate that. It was, uh, I was atoning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but eating and smoking. So, uh, but how that came about was I was working at AOL Music and I had heard that he had a new record coming out, The Raven, and I heard it was fairly challenging. And I was like, geez, I have this huge audience. Let me see if I can reach out to my hero and see if I can help him. And uh, surely, sure enough, sent him an email, sent him another email. He writes back and he goes, I checked you out. You're good. Let's have lunch. Right. So it was, it was like so great. Wild. Yeah. He checked me out with a few people because I was obviously at a place that was pretty legit for the music business in 2002. Um, and we met and we just like literally, it was great. It was like, it's my hero and everything that you kind of thought about him, you know, from hearing his music and his songs and the words and the lyrics. They're like, wait a minute, that's this is not that guy. This is something very different. Um I I I it was just amazing actually. And we just like we talked and bullshitted and then like I said in that in the piece in the book, he called I said, I'll I'll help you. I figure I could do this, do this, do this. I was pretty forthright with him. I was like, you gotta talk more about your past. I was like, you gotta like do talk about your lyrics, talk about like these famous kind of like riffs that you've done. Like, just let us get inside. I said, that's what's so great about the internet circa 20, 2002. I was like, everything's out there. Let's, let's give people more to kind of hang their hat on with you. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was going to be really reluctant to do that, but he called me the next day. He goes, let's do this. Can you build my website? So then it was that. And then it was just, a bunch of other stuff. Wow. And that was the re- the relationship for the next, you know, 10, 11 years. Gee. Incredible. But he was always a, a one to embrace new technologies, it seems. And that includes uh, the internet, uh, it turns out. Um, that's, did you say that you were at Pastis on Yom Kippur and you were both eating and chain smoking? Is, is that, that's how it went down as far as I remember. That's recall. exactly how it went down. I was like, that's, if I'm going to, to sin, on the highest of holy days, I will do it with my with Lou, and go full bore. You know, I, I think can't doing do that measure. Is, you just got to go all in. That's honestly the, the my kind of Judaism, whatever that is. <laughs> that's what I believe. In. I know. I knew you'd appreciate that. Mm, it's much. like yes, it's like, and it's so interesting because, like, I think I even mentioned that to him to see if I could get any acknowledgement of Judaism and his religion. He was just like, uh huh. Like, you know, he's right. He, anything you could say to him that you thought was clever or funny, everybody said it to him <laughs> 20 times before. Right. So nothing ever kind of threw him off. <laughs> kind of Tai Chi like in that respect. He was pretty firmly planted. Always very centered, always very under control. Uh, well, at least, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, trying to be. I think it seems uh, that he really admired and valued the um, pursuit of that. Like that, that seems to be something about his relationship to Tai Chi, as it's portrayed in the book. Is like he had it in his mind that this was the goal was to have that kind of control, mastery over himself, and I think he seems to be aware of that propensity to have an outburst from time to time there's yeah. a, a section where he's uh, a uh, 
one of his many <laughs> personal assistants, there, the turnover rate was quite high. It turns out, um, <laughs> they, uh, there was a moment that she recalls of him saying, you know, if I ever do yell at you, just tell tell me to fuck off and like just just walk away from me. It's like I'm basically like that's that's me failing is kind of how he framed it, which he says a, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. He was aware of, of of a lot of these things. He kind of was coming into uh, they were coming into full focus for him. And that's Priscilla Polly, which uh, she was his assistant when I first started to work with him. Right. And what was, what was crazy about that was, was that Priscilla and I were like, you know, partners in crime and Lou would send us to meet with the label or would send us to like, like he didn't have a manager at the time. He had just gotten rid of one manager. It was in between managers. So he would send Priscilla and myself to meet with the label. I don't think he dug the label or his publicist, Annie O'Hyan to meet with the label or to meet with the promoter. And I was like, how did this happen? Like I was, you know, having a chicken salad at Pastis and now I'm kind of meeting with the, the heads of the label on his behest, on his behalf. So, um, yeah, weird shit. <laughs> it's a funny way uh, that, that lives turn sometimes. Um, he, he was trusting. He's very, he, very he, trusting is what I think you wrote that he once you were in, you were like in. He's yeah. going to rely upon you for certain things. I th- yes, I think I think that trust came from the fact that he knew I was appreciative of having kind of this. We were had this relationship where I was helping him, and I got joy out of that. And he saw that, and also he was just like he was a mensch. You know, he you can't look at the character he portrayed or how he presented his music as being who he was because he's a great writer and presenter of that material. Mm-hmm. But when you start to know him and meet and spend time with him, he's just a, you know, he's just a very, you know, smart, funny, acerbic could get angry pretty quickly, but also could be very joyful and have it had a huge fun laugh. It was just very joyous. And, uh, he, you know, Tai Chi was the thing that really, I think, in many ways, gave him kind of a center point to just kind of that was his thing. At least I think since when I knew him up until his passing. I mean, it was it was what kind of kept him centered and uh, again created that foundation. Yeah, the the Tai Chi as this like um, uh, thing, right? Uh, uh, for lack of a better term, that, that he could invest himself in and that he could build his life around. It's kind of one of the themes that emerges throughout the book, uh, which is comprised of many, many interviews with all sorts of people from all walks of life, all of whom knew Lou in, you know, different kind of contexts. Uh, but it seems like it emerged from, or it started at its roots with Sylvia's brother. Is that right? Yes. So there are, there are conflicting set, uh, or, you know, sets of facts or non-facts <laughs> that s- some musician, some of his band mem- members actually said, well, maybe I introduced him to the martial arts in the late 70s or in the mid to late 70s. So Michael Fonfara was his keyboard player. And there's a story that goes that he, Lou saw him do do karate because he was a black belt. And Lou was fascinated with him to teach me that. And that was like, I think there was like, a he, he was uh, doing like bodyguard work for Lou mm. in Europe. Um, so we tried actually interviewing Michael 
Um, and I got one call back from him and then tried to return his call, but could never get him on to verify that. And then unfortunately he passed away hmm. um, a couple of years back. And then Chuck Hammer, who was his guitarist in the late 70s, uh, I think th- growing up in public and then that tour uh, said he had done some martial arts. So he thinks he may have introduced Lou to some of that. So I think it probably came from a variety of places. Right. But uh, Sylvia's brother, Peter, started working with him in, I think, 1980, 1979, 1980. Right. And Peter is like a world champion, uh, uh, Kung Fu uh, weapons champion. And... Uh, he literally talked in the book about teaching Lou and how Lou was very unsteady and shaky and clearly coming off of different things in the early days. And he would fly from Denver to Newark, get picked up and then go out to their house in the country and just teach him for three straight days and then go fly back, teach him, fly back. And then when Peter, I think, got married or, or you know, went to law school, he met his first that he introduced Lou to his first teacher, Lung Shum, who uh, who taught him. Yeah, it's uh, it's a it, it, a fascinating kind of um, journey. I think that Lou himself took with Tai Chi, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, I mean, I guess it, it is a bit of a coincidence that uh, his second wife's brother happened to be this you know incredible uh, a master of martial arts who was able and willing to train him that way. But uh, at the same time, I don't think there is much of a coincidence uh, uh, based on or about, you know, them and that kind of uh, uh, element of their lives coming into his life and to lose life at the same time that he was finally able to kind of kick, uh, you know, all of his uh, his bad habits at that point. It seems like Tai Chi ultimately kind of evolved into uh, what he was able to fixate on the same way that, you know, some less um, uh, healthful uh, things had been fixations of his uh, you know, in the previous decade. And I think we were, I think that's a great point. And I think we were really careful to not spend so much time like, oh, Rockstar cleans up with Tai Chi. Like, right. mm-hmm. kind of the, we kind of talked about that. But um, what I loved doing when we were putting this book together was kind of like, you know, doing some sleuthing and to really kind of get to dates and things like that. And like, really, when did he start this in earnest? So you'll appreciate this. Bob Ezrin, the producer of you know Berlin. Pink Floyd and Berlin interviewed him. He said, "Oh, I remember Lou coming up to my house in Toronto when he was writing some songs for songs for the I think it's songs from the Elder, the Kiss record." <laughs> yeah, okay. He was <laughs> contributing some uh, lyrics to the, uh, the not band. one I'm super familiar with. I got to confess, "A World Without Heroes" is the song that's probably the most well known. And he said Lou is doing like. He was going north and then going south in my backyard. We couldn't figure out where he was going, but he was doing some martial arts. So that's 1980, 81. Right. Yeah. I I mean, the the depth to which it permeated his life and the, the number of people that you've gotten in the book who all have a story about Lou Reed and Tai Chi to tell, it it is so not the thing of like musician cleans up with a hobby it is not a hobby like that is and i think that as remarkable and kind of surprising as it would be to a lot of fans of lou reed to find out that he has this whole parallel life as a practitioner of tai chi 
it even seems to surprise people who were within that, uh, who, who knew him well, that it was the degree to which he was serious about it. It was like, it wasn't even, even for people who were already involved. It was impressive. Right. It was every day, Monday through Monday, uh, as the book says, he would be upset if it was taken off the schedule for anything. Um, this, it, I mean, the, the tenacity to which he uh, took to the practice is sort of something that seems to have gone very deep and wide throughout every relationship in his life. 100%. He had an amazing, uh, sorry, I forget who said it, but they said he had an amazing life force. I think it was Yamana, who was his body work practitioner. Mm. She said he was just had an amazing life force and what is it wood shedding 10,000 hours i mean he put in so much into tai chi um like you said evan the monday through monday and any free moment he he would do tai chi and he and it, you know it wasn't cheap too i mean he was taking private lessons seven days a week and he used to joke with my brother and i he goes you see yeah, when we were out at his place in Long Island, he goes, you see, I have this little house over here. He goes, had I made some other choices in my career, like if I could write another walk on the wild side, I would have, but I could have owned this whole block. <laughs> so, so he goes, but now that I have, you know, I do fair, I do well, instead of having a portion in the driveway, I spend a lot of money on Tai Chi. <laughs> and he just knew that it was something that helped him, you know, live, definitely live longer, but live very healthy along with diet and uh, you know, probably other therapies just was, that was his thing. That was his, he was taking care of himself. Yeah. Yeah. Live longer and live, live better, I think, and allow him to be a more kind of productive artist as well as just a more productive human being, I think uh, is the uh, idea that I've gotten from uh, reading the book. I've got a question just about the book itself. Right. Um, Cause that's ostensibly what we're here to talk about. Like how, so uh, there is some actual writing from Lou himself in this book. There are some notes. There are some emails he traded, like with uh, Bill O'Connor, for instance. Uh, but most of this is comprised of just these extraordinary uh, personal interviews with all of these people, uh, again, from his uh, different aspects of his life. Like, what can you tell us a little bit about, like, what the state of this project was when you all took it on? Uh, how much of this was sort of like direction that Lou? kind of gave versus how much of this was stuff that you and Lori and the other collaborators kind of decided to push it in? Just like, what was the process of putting this together? Because it's a really fascinating and unique kind of work. Totally. So he, we, so the book deal started in 2008. I started to look at some emails last week when we launched the book, uh, 2008 with, at the time, Simon and Schuster. So I, I had been working with them on another project and I said to the press, the publisher, I said, I want to introduce you to Lou Reed and Master Ren um, because we'd love to do a book on Tai Chi. And she's like, oh, I'd love to meet him. So started in 2008. 2009, he started to work on the book, but it was really challenging to get it started. I think he 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 realized, he's like, I, I don't know if I'm the person to, to talk or write about Tai Chi in a authoritative way. I'm just kind of learning. And I think he had looked at Zen and the art of archery as kind of a, a blueprint for kind of what he wanted to do. Um, so he had, you know, gotten started and wrote down some things and uh, 
you know, he was starting to, you know, scribble into notes and working with Master Ren to kind of outline what this could look like. Um, and he, you know, I would say probably right before he passed or, you know, two a year before he passed, he started to work with his friend uh, A.M. Holmes, the 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 author and press, uh, professor at Princeton University, to say, hey, I really could use some help in outlining this. And there's a great exchange, I think, in the beginning of the book that A.M. spells out where she kind of helped him outline it. Mm-hmm. Right, Lou, like, and there was a kind of back and forth asking questions and gave him a, maybe something to kind of shoot for. Um, so when, when, you know, he, he, he had done that and did some writing and then he and I, at one point, we did a letter to the editor, to the New York times in 2010 or 11, I think it's 10, where there was an article about yoga and how yoga wrecks your body. And then we were like, oh, this is great. Uh, let's do a thing about Tai Chi, Lou, because Lou was a great, you know, wanted to be a great promoter of Tai Chi. So I started to write the letter for him and I sent it back to him. And, you know, it's obviously not in his voice. You can't write for Lou Reed. So, uh, <laughs> but I remember like him going silent for a week and then him sending me something back, which was what we printed in the book, which was just a beautiful, amazing essay about why Tai Chi. Hmm. And we were like, uh, you know, I was like, this is great. And we sent it to the New York Times. Of course, they edited it down and used a third of it. Um, but, you know, Lou didn't complete it. And so what we did was in 2015 or 14 or 15, we started to just call through everything. So I had recorded Lou in different roundtables that we did with other students for DVDs we produced. And I, I ISOed his audio and shared it with Lori, Stefan, and Curry, who were the other editors. And they said, we got something here. And then we looked to, so we had that as a basis, which was incredible because it was really just his focus on Tai Chi. We then looked at some interviews he did with some of the Tai Chi or Kung Fu magazines and kind of pulled from that and some TV interviews that he did. Um, and by the way, his his first talking about Tai Chi dates back to the to the legendary hearts blue mask era really um yeah with the bbc because they had said it's in the book they had said well you're looking strong and healthy these days you know trying to pick a seeing if he would bite right (laughs) and talk about his his past and he kind of uh goes yes i'm studying you know whatever with lung shum so anyway he goes well you're looking good so we had that we had articles we had we had transcripts and then what we did was we said we really need to talk to his friends and fellow students. And mm-hmm. that's kind of how we started our interview process. So we interviewed over 80 people, all walks of life, uh, from music to fellow students to other Tai Chi teachers to, you know, so, just everybody. Yeah. Um, and which was fascinating, guys. Like, as fans of Lou, being able to talk to other people who knew him and love his music and it's just such a great conversation to have. Like what was, you know, talk about, did he ever talk to you about Tai Chi, about health, about, you know, his regimen? Well, talk about his music. And so that's like people like uh, the interviews were able to get really helped round out the whole thing. Yeah. So it was a pretty cool process. It really is in many ways. It has bio auto 
Someone, some people have said in the news groups that it's the closest they'll get to an autobiography. Yeah, it's like an autobiography minus the auto, basically. It's just, it, like right. this, it, it, it is a completely like uh, 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 fleshed out and fully three-dimensional picture of the human being at the center of it, just without much of the human being at the center of it having done the writing himself, you know? <laughs> it wasn't our intent, by the way. That was not the intent. It really was the intent was to talk about, you know, what he set out to do the appreciation of Tai Chi, the love, and how to, like, how you too can do this. Right. Mm. So that's a nice kind of byproduct is what else we were able to kind of glean from or, you know, report on. Totally. Um, the, you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, um, but, like, his reticence to write about Tai Chi or his hesitance to, uh, uh, you know, not um, fully commit to this, that struck me, you know, that, that emerges several times throughout the book, um, it, but that strikes me um, because he is one of the great writers of the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned, in any discipline, um, and also, obviously, from a young age, as Evan and I have talked about ad nauseum, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> t- it took on, you know, a consciously kind of literary uh, uh, approach to his songwriting uh, and strove to uh, you know, put himself into the ranks of, you know, book writers and poets and, and other authors and stuff. Why Do you feel like it was just kind of a matter of him being more of an outsider to the, to the, to the Tai Chi world that made him hesitant to do so? Or do you feel like there was anything else behind that? I, I you know, I, I, I would consciously try to not think what would Lou, what, what was Lou thinking or what was he not thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, we just don't know. Um, and that was, a, that was, we didn't ever want to fall into that trap as we were putting this book together. Um, so I really, I really, it, it, my thinking is, is that, um, this, it's a hard, it's, I mean, Tai Chi and just martial, the study of martial arts, I say in my kind of little blurb at the end is like, it's kind of a, 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 a road that has no end, like, and just maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was just uh, that wasn't something that he felt that he could uh, put words to and do it with conviction and credibility. And I think that's where AM comes in. If you read her passage, she really talks about, I'm never going to tell Lou Reed how to write. Lou Reed is a writer. Right. Um, The one thing, so stepping away from the book and just as a fan like you guys, I think I had asked him several times, like, how come you never wrote that novel that you talked about in this you know, press clipping or never did, you know, anything outside of really music um, and poetry. And I think, I I don't, I just, I think he said it was just, I remember him saying at one point, it's just a tough, tough thing to start. Like Mm -hmm. he knew how to write songs. And Laurie talks a lot about that. Like what's, what's so great about Lou is, is that he never looked like he was working and she knew he was working on something, but never saw him working. (laughs) And then you know, I'm probably poorly paraphrasing this, but then, you know, the next day would wake up and have an album written. Right. So uh, that's one thing. And then I remember one time saying to him, he, I talked about songwriting with him and I, he goes, you know, right now the window is open and the door is open and things are just, it's coming to me. And when that door closes, you never know when that's going to happen. So that's I almost I mean I hate to it's like make hay while the sun is shining kind of <laughs> approach. Um, so I can only imagine what he didn't put down on paper that he had started to work on. Yeah, makes sense. That also kind of raises the question, which I think Penn Gillette in his piece actually 
alludes to, which is that he's, you know, Pendulet famously a uh, secular man. <laughs> he says, you know, <laughs> I wish I could tell you that Lu's uh, relationship to Tai Chi was was not spiritual, but I'd be like, I can't say that. He He seems to say that what, he got gathered about Lou's um, practice was was it was the closest thing apparently to some kind of a a spiritual a religious uh, feeling that he he went back to. Um, I wonder perhaps if that has something to do with you know it, it being just something separate than from the the creative life that he lives uh, lived day to day. Yeah, we 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 had talked a lot about that, how like different elements of Tai Chi actually were, you could find them in his lyrics and in his songs. Mm. So uh, Lori likes to talk about the power of the heart, right? And that, that the power of the heart is something that is the heart and the power and these kind of these feelings. Definitely there's so much Tai Chi in that lyric. And in that song or, or set the twilight reeling. Oh yeah. The, the word reeling. Hmm. Right. Like reeling, we do something called silk reeling, which is kind of a standing exercise where you're kind of, you're kind of moving the chi and you're kind of very particular word that I have wondered, where does that come from? Yeah. It's a Tai Chi terminology. It's, it's part of. It's from silk reeling. That's uh, Hmm. kind of a foundational, you know, beginning exercise um, as you start to learn the forms. And, and so it's so interesting that he, and we looked for it in other places too. Lori, Lori had mentioned that um, Sunday morning has some Tai Chi in it. And I'll tell you where it is. Um, watch out the world's behind you. Yeah. Right? yeah. The world's behind you. And one of, the, one of the, the principles of Tai Chi, especially when you're kind of doing the beginning practice of standing mountain, the teacher, Master Ren says, listen behind you. So that's the, the, you know, being centered and kind of being rooted. You're going to, everything that's happening around you, you're just more aware. And, uh, you know, I had just taken it as like Sunday morning is paranoia. Like watch <laughs> out, the world's behind you. Right. You're waking up and uh, you still got a little uh, hangover from last night. Right. But I think it, 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 that was a lot of fun too, by the way, was going back and going back to the velvets, the velvets days, and kind of trying to find evidence of his, for lack of a better word, you know, his. I think he was very much interested in magic, and in you know, I think it was uh, Alice Bailey, and I think it's the whole treatise and white white magic, white light. Um, and I don't know enough about this yet, but we what we did was we interviewed a guy named Rob Norris who actually was from a band called the bongos and he was a uh, boston based he was he was famous for seeing the velvets in summit new jersey in 1965 at their first official gig um wow when mo joined the band uh but the best kind of connective tissue to th- kind of those early days with jonathan richmond whom mm-hmm. i know you boys are fans of yes and i got to tell you I just spoke to him last week because I got the he got the books and um, he was very complimentary and you know he had some things like hey it would be great if we could 
this, this, and this. And I was like, yeah, um, you know, I would love to, we can maybe, you know, change that at our next printing or whatever. But he, um, I said, Jonathan, I said, you are so crucial to this story because you connect 60s Lou with 70s, mm. 80s Lou. Mm. And wow. I had no idea the story of his relationship with him. So I was like a kid in the candy shop, just like, how did you meet him? You well, know? that's crazy because you're the way you met him when you were talking about your Richmond meeting. Uh, <laughs> Lou story is very similar to the way that Jonathan tells it, which, which, which is that he knew something, commented on something very specific about the music, about the guitar. Whereas uh, apparently Jonathan Richmond said you, he commented on how the guitars are sometimes used, as he put it, like percussion instruments, like drums. And it stopped Lou and he was like, well, interested because it's a real it's something that only someone deeply listening would say and it seems like that happened to you yes i think yes it's jonathan jonathan's story is just to me it blew me away because i first of all i had no idea he had seen him 70 or 80 times and yeah. by the way we got to jonathan through pendulette interestingly enough Interesting. I, I, I really loved his Pendulette's uh, section here. Yeah, was that really... was one of the his. He just to sidebar his uh, uh, little uh, reminiscence about like seeing the Velvets like at, during the reunion section and and like the way that Mo was like in charge of everyone and Lou and John yeah, were like fucking together. hating each other, but <laughs> when they were playing music, they were just completely locked in on a. That was incredible stuff. I, I don't want to derail it even further, but just last night I was watching the uh, video of them playing Heroin in the reunion. Tour and it's just like it, I, I was like brought to tears by it it's so amazing it's as and good as it gets that is it, you see that happen you see the sort of like tension between Lou and John and but then by the end they're just like going so it's so feverish feverish and intense yeah. and and Mo is just hammering away and really is like guiding it it's it's un- unbelievable this episode of Jokerman Podcast is brought to you by Factor Meals. Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, can help you fuel up fast with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. Folks, it's fall. Bob Dylan is going back out on tour. You might be running around all across the country trying to catch each and every one of these shows, and Factor Meals can help you do just that. If you're too busy to cook but want to make sure you're eating well, Factor will help you skip extra trips to the grocery store and all the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up, too, while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. If you're looking for calorie-conscious options, try delicious, dietitian approved calorie-smart meals with no more than 550 calories per serving. So this September, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. So head to factormeals.com slash jokerman50 and use the code jokerman50 to get 50% off Again, that's code JOKERMAN50 at factormeals.com slash JOKERMAN50 to get 50% off. Namaste to our friends at Factor Meals. I have, I have, I have many places to go from that comment. The first <laughs> is, is that at the New York Public Library in 2009, Mo, Doug, Yule, and Lou did a, a whole kind of like Q&A with, I think it was David Frick. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, just talking about the Velvets and the history, there was the uh, one of the Velvets, I think it was the Johan Kugelberg book that was coming out. 
And I met Mo's childhood friend backstage after it. And he goes to, and he said to me, he goes, you know, you look at her, you see her. She's very diminutive. Like, you know, she's beating the shit out of the drums. She goes, I used to go to the gigs. Her hands were bleeding. Her hands were bleeding. And I was like, of course they were. I mean, I'm sorry we didn't get to speak to her. Like, that's the other thing. The Eds, me. So we call ourselves the Eds. Stefan, Curry, and Lori and I were like, we can interview another 80 people. Right. And still have another book of a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Totally. This is so much fun. But um, to your point about Jonathan, so John, I didn't know the story. This is so crazy of how Luke kind of, they just stopped talking to each other. He stopped talking to Jonathan in the late 60s. Yeah. And did not speak to him until 1992. Wow. When Pendulet took Lou to see Jonathan at the Lone Star Cafe in New York and funnily enough, I was at that show. Really? Wow. I was at that show with my brother, and we talked to Jonathan. Wow. And they went to the Carnegie Deli afterward, um, which is the story, which I don't know if – I know you guys both – did you both live in New York or one of you lived in New York? We yeah, did, we both did. I was there longer. Congratulations. Okay, so you know the Carnegie Deli. <laughs> but he uh, – and, and he talks about how Lou kind of like – said, this is just great. I'm so proud of you. You've done so great. And jo- that made Jonathan, that made his day. And that was something like when, when Lou kind of saw you doing your thing and working and he would give you positive, you know, praise or saying that was really good or that wasn't so good or whatever, it made your day, right? Because you knew he cared and he was, ne- he never like tossed off any a comment just haphazard, you know, flippantly. He really meant it. And uh, so Jonathan was a great interview, was a great interview in this book. And uh, I just love him. And he, we, we still talk and, you know, he's very interested to see what happens with this. Yeah. It's uh, one of the, it's an early, I think, uh, segment shows up in the first 50 pages or something. But like, if you're not already in by that point, like as soon as you get there, it's just like, you're off to the races. That is such a beautiful kind of recollection from someone who I, I did. I, the, the 20 year gap is fucking is wild to me. <laughs> and then just to resume it as if nothing ever happened. And Jonathan is just like, you know, the grinning, grinning like a kid again, uh, even as a 50 year old man or whatever in 1992. It's incredible. What is it about, or I mean, what do you think it is, Scott? Uh, uh, or what could it be about Tai Chi and martial arts in general that, makes it such a an area of interest and focus for rock musicians or musicians in general because there's so many different uh, uh, musicians and producers that you know you talk to Tony Visconti is one of the first ones who shows up here and he's super uh, into it you know just as much as Lou it seems uh, Iggy uh, is uh, also you know has his own uh, uh, take on things or his own angle on things is not a Tai Chi uh, expert necessarily but like it, 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 it seems interesting to me. Like, I feel like there's something there and, and it wasn't a connection that I had made previous to, to this, but clearly coming out of this, like this is, there, there's something that is tying those two worlds together. You know, to, you mentioned the three of them. I think they, they literally simple answers. I think they beat the shit out of their body for so many years, just for in a variety of ways. And certainly, <laughs> you know, uh, performance or just, you know, not necessarily healthy living. Um, or maybe it was healthy living at the time. That may have, 
that may have been their intent. I don't know. But I think that, and I can only speak for myself, as I got older and things started to ache and you started to get pains or I wanted to start doing other, you know, more active pursuits like running or, 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 or things like that, or, you know, being on stage for two and a half hours Sure, that you need to take care of yourself. And, um, the, that Tai Chi really is just a fascinating, um, practice that really helps you strengthen yourself from, you know, like I said, from the inside out and, um, I think like I think Iggy was with Qigong and breathing exercises and some Tai Chi with his uh his teacher Don An and Tony uh studied the Alexander technique mm-hmm. and that was a and then he studied also in London did Tai Chi with uh, John Kells and then when he came over to the back to the United States cuz he was you know all over the place LA or London and and New York he he took up with Master Ren. Um, I just think it gave them uh, a real sense of, uh, I think, health and feeling real power and feeling good and kind of um, just kind of, again, center, centered. Um, and, you know, I study with Tony and like Tony would teach me in class or Lou would teach me in class and th- teach everybody. Like you would have some rando come off the streets and like all of a sudden Lou would walk up to them and start to <laughs> blow it away. <laughs> Who's this? Like I can't believe Lou Reed's teaching me or Tony's teaching me. And uh, I just have such warm feelings about that. Like learning from somebody who you admire and kind of hold in high regard, you're, you're just that much more tuned into what's going on. Mm. And um I just think that that that's also part of the study, by the way, guys, is that teaching helps you become a better, a better student yourself. Sure. Mm -hmm. So so, uh, Master Ren really was very insistent on, on that being kind of the protocol for, for class. And it was just great. Yeah. great. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I think that's the common thread between the three of those guys. Totally. And, And by the way, Jonathan did it too. He he had I don't know if you saw tai that Chi. his section. Yeah, mm-hmm. he did push hands, and I don't think he was he he didn't do it all for all that long. But you know, I remember one time Tony brought David Bowie to class, and I think that which is wild because nobody knew it was David Bowie, and it was like <laughs> a guy. It was like he was in this. Thing. He's like in a he was at a hat and a gray sweatshirt on. Yeah. And it didn't look like him. Yeah. And at the end of the class, I was like, Tony, who's your friend? And I really didn't know he was a oh, that's David. Like, <laughs> and I was like, this is crazy. And I think Ren and he maybe he had taught Ren, Ren taught him a few times, but I think he had I, I remember him saying he had heart issues, and this was something that they mm-hmm. thought might be helpful, but I don't think mm-hmm. he ever pursued it. Sure. The the simple answer being that the healing benefits of Tai Chi are uh, undeniable is, you know, that's absolutely true. I do wonder about like the, the complicated answer. And I wonder about, you know, these are the first generation of rock musicians to get to that age. All of these artists have in some way or another, put effort into finding their relationship with energy. And that's how they, I, there's no other explanation for how you can be 81 years old and like he's 
doing what you do and how Lou was doing Lulu at the end of his life. This is right. That's some kind of higher, uh, refinement of one's relationship to energy, I think is like, it's the only explanation I can get for how that stuff is possible. I agree. I think leaving, I think they, you know, they leave it all on the, on the floor, leave it all on the stage. Like it's just a commitment to the presentation of their art at, with power, with energy. And uh, it's very, an, a very emotional experience. Certainly for Lou, I observed that a lot. It was such an emotional experience that uh, I could see that through line with, with that generation, as you say, that first generation of really, they, you're right, they were creating their medium. And um, they all kind of found this. I, I'm curious, doesn't Dylan do, does Dylan do any type of um, um, pursuit? If he, <laughs> like, if he does, we don't know about it. <laughs> what yeah. is it, by the way, what is the dance you guys refer to when he kind of like backs up like somebody is like, because um, uh, I've seen him on stage several times. He kind of like has this little dance he does. Little shuffle. Well, the it, shuffle. A, yeah, there's a thing where it kind of looks like he's like adjusting his like like suspenders or something. It's like he's like kind of like the shoulders, like getting his jacket kind of. Today, yeah, these days, it's really just like he gets in the stance and he just kind of like tucks at his jacket and kind of like, you know. Wide stance. Yeah, but, the wide stance. Watching Jonathan Richmond, I've always thought um, – that it seems he's so connected to his body. He's dancing up on, on stage. Yes. And he's a little more there, limber than Bob. There is something Tai Chi like about it. Like the way that he moves is um, it, it's very fluid and like uh, broad movements that kind of just, you know, he wears loose clothes. And uh, and the way he holds his guitar, you know, sometimes he holds yeah. it like this and you're yeah. like, he's like a just weapon. Playing. Uh, right, like a or like a, a martial arts weapon is like a, which <laughs> I, I do want to ask about that um aspect of it um the weapons what, the weapons <laughs> and because it seems like this whole other part of it is actually Lou Reed spinning swords around a lot <laughs> <laughs> on his roof yeah I love all the stories about like him like. Uh, being like, yeah, I got a. I, I just pulled into this hotel. I'm gonna have a a sword the size of your leg, and I'm gonna be swinging it around. So uh, I need an empty <laughs> conference room in order to do that and well, not freak people out. What was I? What was I thinking? Of course, Bob is a boxer. Bob. Uh, Bob oh, that's a good point. Yeah, boxing. Right. They've all Sweet got their. Science. They've all got their aggressive, you know, kind of physicality uh, 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 preferences. Lou is a little more, uh, you know, Eastern uh, influence. Bob's a little more Western. But uh, at the end of the day, I guess it's uh, a similar. I can relate drive. to that. By the way, I think we can all relate to that. Sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, um, what I was amazed at with Lou with the weapons. Was first of all, it's a great work. It's it's kind of doing the forms, but with a, a I don't want to say a prop, but with something that's kind like of a weight, a little more, yeah, yeah, weighted exactly. And so one of the amazing things is, is that he would practice that. And these are pretty complicated forms. He was building up his his core by with the tai chi, but then his arms and his shoulders and his back would like you see the transformation. Like it was he was ripped. Right. Like it was amazing, like seeing that transformation. He's kind of he's very proud of that. That's why I think if you look at that Berlin live from St. Anne's, 
Yeah. He's purposely has a sleeveless shirt on. And I know you guys, I love the when you guys talk about album cover art and logos. <laughs> and so I'm, I think that way too. So I, I think of that record and I'm like, he's like, he's full on, like, this is what's going on, folks. Hell yeah. Like, I'm strong as shit. The thing I wanted to mention to you guys was, um, and I owe this to you guys, and I can't believe I didn't, I, I didn't, I missed this. But I, I guess, yeah, let me think. He, the re- the song I found in the archives, Open Invitation, which I'm hoping you guys heard it. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, but yeah, keep going. Okay, so, because I was thinking, that's his first writing about Tai Chi. Um, I was up there listening to it in the archives, and I was kind of like there for hours. And all of a sudden, I'm listening, I'm kind of closing, I'm meditating, not sleeping. I'm meditating, and I am, all of a sudden, I hear lyrics about Tai Chi, and with this crazy groove. And I'm like, this is nuts. And I text Lori and text everyone. Like, I just found this. What is this? So Jason, who you guys had on, Jason Stern, Mm. goes right into the database, goes, oh, my God, we haven't seen this. This is new. So we found it, looked at, you know, kind of. And and I foolishly said, this has got to be from the mistrial session because it was that that I thought it was J.T. Lewis on drums. Um. And the bass was Fernando, of course. And then I was like, and so I just kind of didn't think about it. And everybody was like, oh, yeah, we did that. That's what we put in the book. But it turned out it was from the New Sensations. Um, the New Sensations studio sessions from 1984. Wow, so even earlier. Even earlier, which does link up with what one of his teachers said. He said, oh, yeah, he wrote a song for Tai Chi in the mid-80s. So I had mistakenly said it was 85, not 84. But Evan, in his, and and this made me laugh, when you pointed out Lou's ability to kind of um, bend words in New Sensations with my friend George, and he goes, I think he, what did he say? He goes, what's the void? What's the void? What's the void, yeah. But in Open Invitation, he goes, Toyne. Yeah. So it was you guys that I was like, ah, yes, the dots are connected. Uh, yeah, that is a classic uh, affectation that shows up uh, in prominence on uh, New Sensations. <laughs> it's also just, a, you know, New Sensations, a record that is called that. Uh, totally. And it is so much about his changing life or uh, for the better, um, especially after uh, stuff like uh, bottoming out and, and, uh, legendary hearts like this that record i think implies that something was changing beyond just uh ride the motorcycle getting a haircut a motorcycle motorcycle and uh yeah because it's and it it's fascinating to know that he was actively interested in tai chi while he was making those songs which have this new tranquility to them this this un it, like you just said at the very beginning, like, how is this the same person? Um, right. And right. it seems that it was truly the beginning of a new way of seeing things for Lou Reed. I almost wish we had waited to do new sensations until after this, because this, like, that's given me a whole new kind of appreciation and angle. As much as I already loved it, like, seeing the way that this was really blooming and blossoming in his life around that time is. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Those four records, Blue Mask, Legendary Hearts, New Sensations, and Mistrial, for me, are so much a part of 
when I really kind of got into him. Sure. And I, and I, I hate when people are saying, I shouldn't say hate. I don't, I don't agree with the opinion that mistrial was not, was one of his worst record. I remember you reading the Rolling Stone. Yeah. Uh, thing. yeah. It's baffling to me that people are just like, Oh, this record is dog shit. It is like completely laughable. Like it's just like, it's filled with great songs. And like, some of them are like a little kind of goofy and stuff, but like uh, top to bottom, I think it's a super strong record. It's, it's you guys hit it though. At the end, tell it to your heart. Yeah. Um, in your review, I keep, I mean, he played that up until the O's. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure if you look on, I know he played that when I, and I had seen him live and he was very committed to that song. It's a beautiful song, it's one of but also favorites, yeah. video violence. It was a song that I heard him play during the New York tour. And you had, he, you had him, you had Rob Wasserman. I think it was Bob Medici on drums, Lou, and Mike Rathke, and he does a killer version of that song. Sure. And so there's some real great, you know, kind of this great nuggets from that record that he played up and, you know, I want to say to the end, but, uh, you know, certainly to the last time I saw him. On into the future. And that's, and video violence for that matter, I think fits right in with what he was talking about on, uh, exactly. on New- like that sounds like the same kind of guy as like Good Evening Mr. Waldheim or something. Uh, you know, it's, totally. it's, it's, it's totally coming from the same place. And the, you know, the production, the sound of the record on New York obviously is a little more palatable, a little more timeless, a little cleaner. But, uh, you know, lyrically and, and emotionally, I think he's he's absolutely in that same headspace. Now, I think now I always thought about Lou. When did Lou get political? Like like when did his song start to take on kind of that edge a little right. bit or that subject matter? Now, one could go right back to Take No Prisoners when, when he famously said, give me an issue. I'll give you an issue and play <laughs> yeah. my ass with it. Lou, are you political? Political about what? Right. Like uh, the banter. So, okay, so let's say he, I don't think there was anything necessarily pol- political in the Bells, maybe. Well, no, the, uh, there is the, the factoid, well, more than that, the fact that Kill Your Sons began as its life yes. as, a, as a song against the Vietnam War. Yeah. So oh, that's there so is right. that's a seed right. of that, which eventually, you know, that song, that version never came but he actively, no, but, yeah, and, and so he actively avoided putting yeah. that out into the world, perhaps because he didn't want to be tied in to this whole political angle on things. That's right, and he didn't want to. He always said, "I don't." You, he like he didn't root things in the uh, the current events because it would age that song, right? right. It would uh, it would age that work. Uh, so I think he purposely avoided that, or and also and also vernacular like or. Um, colloquialisms you try to stay away from that too although one could argue in sally can't dance there are some kind of rooted in the mid early 70s mindset a little bit <laughs> yeah so kenneth true. lane jewelry sally can't dance <laughs> i mean he definitely uh doesn't shy away from that at later points i think that there's like like sex with your parents he's like fully just dropping naming Republicans right. just like the bit about him <laughs> wanting to play sex with your parents at the fucking uh, uh, White, uh, House. The White House with the, the former Czech president. That was incredible. Laslav Havel. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great story of Bill Berger. He says that in yeah. the book. That's the best. Uh, Bill, there's so many interesting characters, guys, in this book. That's the thing I 
I would, I always said, I wish we were filming these people. We got them all oh, like yeah. on audio, but the people that kind of orbited Lou's world were really interesting kind of characters for lack of a better word. So Lou had, you know, Lou was a great writer and reporting about different characters. So um, it's just so interesting that all these people that we interviewed were really just very special and all the feedback we've gotten about the book from them has been really overwhelmingly positive, which I'm so happy about. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it, I, you it, can't it, ask for anything more. Yeah, I mean, and and, and it 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 would be well des it is well deserved as far as I'm concerned. I, I think that it's it's just um, you know a really honest and forthright and and like I was saying earlier, three dimensional kind of portrait of uh, of of who he was. And over time, also, because you go all the way back into you know, yeah. you're talking to Bob Ezrin about Lou showing up in 1973, and you're also talking to literally like this surgeon who did the liver transplant on him Charlie you know, Miller in, in in his in his final months it's uh you know from beginning to end it's it's all covered here yeah uh, his sister Merrill uh Lou's sister Merrill or Bunny as she's known she uh wrote us wrote me this weekend and she just was she she was I've I've not seen anything quite like this before this is almost kind of describes Lou as I knew him I felt everything that everybody talked about in this book, it was who my brother was. And uh, that was interesting to hear. I was so happy to hear that. Wow. Because we just didn't want to, again, like I said, we didn't want to kind of make assumptions or say this is how he thought, this is what he was thinking at this time. We just wanted to report on what we heard from these different, these different people. I mean, that's the thing about Lou that I was just – you talk about getting emotional and just talk about kind of feeling everything. Hmm. And he felt everything. I mean, I, from what I saw when I observed like getting, when he would get off stage and he would do this or that, I, he was moot, moot, you know, visibly shaken in a way, like talk about being so invested in your art and in the presentation of the art. I learned so much by just seeing that. And I was like, you just don't take, I never took any of it for granted mm. um, or him for granted. And, you know, he, towards the end, especially, I mean, certainly with the Lulu record, but that's all the tours before the Lulu record. Thank God for Tai Chi, obviously keeping him fit and keeping him as healthy as possible. But as his body really did start to fail, and he was just like, fuck you. Like I am keep, I'm going to keep going. Right. And so the tours and just like uh, the, the ferocity with which he kind of attacked the guitar and how, what he called on from his band mates or band members to kind of do that, not this, don't do this, do go for it. And I saw that and I was just like, I was sh shaken by it. And I hope people see that because, or hear that, um, and in the Lulu record, which I know you guys will be reviewing at some point, um, I mean, what we, what did we say? It's a, the great, it's the, it's like, what did Hal Wilner say in the book? He said something like Leonard Cohen, you know, went out, his last record was something, my Lord, uh, Warren Zevon had his final record kind of a little more, you know, uh, yes. what does he say, by the I, way, what is it? 
I saw that quote earlier. I took a picture yeah. of it. Uh, let me let me pull it up because it was so good. I, like I'm, I want to tweet it out at some point because it's such a pure kind of like distillation of everything that we think about here. Uh, let me see. Yeah, I have Where the book somewhere. Yeah, here we go. Okay, here's the direct quote from uh, Hal Wilner. Uh, he Lou always made work about what he was going through. The angry period, the happy period. Lou was in excruciating pain while making Lulu, his last record. If you listen, it's interesting. Warren Zevon's last record, or Leonard Cohen's, or even Bowie's, it's, I'm ready, my lord. Lou was not, I'm ready, my lord. He was, fuck you, lord. It was a fuck you record. David Bowie pointed out that it might be the most honest record ever. Totally. It's a pretty great assessment of, mm-hmm. of, of, a, of a pretty great record. A great oh. record, and it, yeah. you just listen to it, and you saw, and it's very interesting. Lars is in the book. Lars and Kirk are in the book, and Kirk, and they have such a beautiful take on. Uh, certainly, Lars does on the record, and it's just how it's aged well. Oh yeah, I mean, um, right? I think. I mean, I think it's kind of what we're. It is what we're leading up to with this whole series on uh, Lou, and and uh, it's. I think a record that I keep coming every time I come back to it, I'm more and more, uh, moved by it, uh, struck by it. It's so, you know, much has been said about the way that his choice to have Metallica, people just laughed at that. Um, I think that his, something about his commitment to like harnessing power in his own body it seems like, you know, at the moment when he was weakest and his body is failing and he's clinging and working with it still, uh, trying to stay on with, uh, with his Tai Chi practice. And then it's like, there's something, uh, something about him calling upon this band who's just, who, who can just bring the thunder to his music. Um, I, th- I think that there's some kind of relationship there of, of knowing like, I really want this to come across. Uh, I want power behind it. Um, and I think that it's a beautiful, a beautiful album that succeeds at that. Um, and it, it's demanding, but I think it, it, it respects the audience to like get on his level. And it, I, he, it's like first take best take. Right. Like these guys were not used to recording that way. And he's just like, all right, next. Like they just kept moving through it. But there's a guy, Chuck Armstrong, who writes, has a website, the Ultimate Metallica website. And I know Chuck really well. He was at a couple of our book events and he picked out the, the Metallica sections from our book and really kind of put it into perspective. And, um, you know, I think he, I don't, I think Kirk was the one that did yoga. So there was, they were kind of meeting on that and he and Lou were kind of a, that was a common ground. I don't think Lars or James or Robert did it, but I know when we were, Lou was touring in 2011, we were on tour. We were, I traveled with him on that tour for a little bit. He was in Paris at Lorex and uh, all the bandmates came up, came to the show that night mm. to see him perform and then they he left and then i think they shot with anton corbin the photos for the the for the lulu kind of project um 
maybe it was in Norway or I forget where it was, but uh, I I loved watching other musicians who were in Lou's presence kind of honor him and show him reverence and also who he was also equally as as reverential to them and to their output. I just was like, I, I saw that so many times. Um, and uh, it, I mean, he was incredibly supportive. And it's funny, you know, everybody makes, I always think that everybody makes this thing of John Cale and he being, you know, very polarizing, but also very much together, polarized very much together. You read press press from like the early days on, he's always so supportive of John Cale. He's like, you yeah. got to get John Cale's latest. You know, it's like he took he whatever was going on. It was like, this is my man. Like, yeah. this is my mate. They were together through, I mean, through the 70s and 80s and stuff. Like, you know, obviously Lou was backing John in, in a couple of shows that John played randomly. John showed up to that radio interview or the the DJ set that Lou was doing. John came out to Lou's place in New Jersey and swam with him in the pond there. And there's all these stories of them just like. <laughs> hanging out and being friends, even though obviously there, there wasn't uh, much in the way of artistic collaboration until the early 90s. And then that very quickly, you know, <laughs> that book was opened <laughs> and closed very quickly. But uh, no, I mean, their their respect and, and love and admiration for one another throughout the years is clearly well documented right up until John's statement, you know, on Lou's passing, you know, uh, yeah. uh, issue right then and just, you know. Really, a a, a a a relationship for the ages between the two of them, and they just made the the best album ever. Also, uh, when they did get back together for that second songs for Jala, yeah, okay, yeah, it was the best. so I saw that worked out at St. Anne's Church in 1989. Wow! Oh, early '89 when it was before they presented it at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of mm-hmm. Music. It was incredible. You were just, you felt the electricity in that room because you were like, is this going to be a Velvet Underground? <laughs> like You were like, it was bananas. Jeez. Uh, it's amazing how they, they talk about the energy and the, pre, the energy that you have been talking about. How just like two guys getting into a room playing acoustic guitar or playing in an acoustic setting, how much energy and anticipation and excitement that generated. Right. Like the yeah. lore and the myth of the Velvet Underground was so strong yeah, that the, you just, the, what's going to happen? The minimalism, the simplicity of that that piece is like, uh, it says everything about like the, the telepathy, the, the creative telepathy between them. They knew exactly, like, it's a record that seems to be from two people who understand that the imagination fills up so much space and that they can like, know when not to have uh all of this extra stuff it's like it really respects them as individuals it really respects uh in service of respecting andy warhol it's um it is this thing of you know that is also a teacher relationship in in lou reed's life and and his reverence for uh his teachers in tai chi and for later recognizing I think the same thing with, with Andy Warhol in that piece and songs for Drilla. Um, it seems that even though there was difficulty there, he, he really did kind of maybe see a connection of like 
this was a mentor. This was somebody who yeah brought me to where I am. That was a that was, that was a conscious a conscious effort in create in making of the book was acknowledging the, his teachers and his mentors, and so we had up until Master Ren, uh, Master Del Ren Guanyi, Schwartz to, to Master Ren. <laughs> yeah, Del, <laughs> Delmore, well, Andy Warhol, Delmore yeah. Schwartz, um, Bob Wilson. Robert Bob Wilson, the, mm. sta- the stage and scene designer, and talk a lot about that. Um, uh, it was incredible. Lou is a like, I mean, reverence to his teachers, but also a student while while being a teacher at the same time. Scott, you've already been so uh, generous with your time here, so we don't want to suck up your night from you too much longer. I love talking to you guys. You guys, I am. You know how much of a fan I am. That's why I interact with you guys all the time. Well, I'm sometimes I'm I'm also I'm sending you dates now. Check my dates. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, any uh, other questions? Any other thoughts? Remembrances? Just one thing that I would stress to the book or stress about the book is like uh, you know the, it's called the Art of the Straight Line, My Tai Chi, uh, and it is in large part about Tai Chi and its centrality to lose life over the years. Um, uh, but it is about so much more than that also. And so if anyone out there is, you know, put off uh, uh, about um, uh, something like this, if you're interested in Lou Reed, but you're not interested in Lou Reed and Tai Chi necessarily, like it, this is a, just an essential, fascinating and a, a, a beautiful kind of portrait of the man uh, that includes an awful lot about Tai Chi, uh, but is, uh, is so much more than that. So uh, I really cannot stress uh, enough how uh, uh, much of a unique and um, just exciting kind of uh, peek into his world and his life this this has been for me. Thank you, Ian. Thank you. You couldn't have said it better. And I would invite everybody who, I mean, thank God for the archives in New oh, York yeah. at the New York Public, at the library, at Lincoln Center. I mean, that's where all this, we, we found so much of this stuff there. So anybody who's in New York or likes to, is going to New York, make a visit, even though the exhibition is over. Um, there's just so much there that you could kind of get knee deep in and just get lost, which is some of the best way to spend time is to get lost in hearing your favorite artists do different things. It's incredible. I really appreciate you guys very much. Oh, thank Please. you. The so pleasure much. is all ours, Scott. Like uh, we said at the beginning, just uh, being able to to sit down and speak with someone who was with the man, you know, uh, and and saw him through so many different phases of his life uh, is is a privilege beyond belief. Once again, folks out there, the book is "The Art of the Straight Line: My Tai Chi" by Lewis Allen Reed, with an assist from the Eds, as Scott said. Laurie Anderson, Stephen Berwick, Bob Curry, and of course, Scott himself. Scott, thanks again. Jokerman. Praying.